From MIT Technology Review, I'm Elizabeth Bramson Boudreaux. And this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Before we get started, I'd like to invite listeners to join the MIT Technology Review Global Panel, our exclusive forum of thought leaders, innovators, and executives. And as a member of the Global Panel, you can examine today's tech trends, see survey and study results, have your say, and join your peers at business gatherings worldwide. Apply to join the panel at technologyreview.com slash global panel. That's technologyreview.com slash global panel. Now, wouldn't it be cool if your phone could tell that you're in a grouchy mood from all the day's interruptions and hold your calls so that you could get some work done? Or wouldn't it be great if your daughter's tablet computer could tell when she's bored with her educational game and increase the challenge level to keep her engaged? Well, before our devices can serve us better in ways like this, they're going to need to understand what we're actually feeling. And that's what I'm talking about today with my guest, Gabby Zeiderveld. She's the Chief Marketing Officer and Head of Product Strategy at Affectiva, a startup in Boston that's a leader in the new field of emotion tracking AI. It's a spin-off from the MIT Media Lab's Affective Computing Group. That's Affective with an A. Affectiva builds algorithms that read people's faces to detect their emotions and other cognitive states. The technology is already helping big companies test how audiences react emotionally to their ads. And now Gabby is leading a project to equip cars with software that will monitor drivers' cognitive and emotional states and help keep them safe and awake. It could all amount to a big leap forward in the way we interact with computing devices. But of course, it also raises some tough questions about how to keep algorithms that can read our emotional states from exploiting our attention or invading our privacy. Gabby, welcome, and thank you so much for visiting us. Thank you so much for having me. The name of your company, Effectiva, is a play on words, and it's a play on the term effective computing. Can you define what effective computing is, please? Effective computing is basically designed to bridge the divide between human emotions and technology. And effective computing enables technology to understand human emotions and then adapt and respond to these emotions. So Effectiva, as I understand it, spun out of the Media Lab in what, about 20, 2009? Yeah, correct. Almost 10 years ago. Okay. And, and the co-founders are Rosalind Picard who is head of the Media Lab's Effective Computing Group, and Rana el Kalubi. I'm not sure if I'm saying that Rana right. Rana el Kalubi. So she was a postdoc at that point in Correct. the group, right? Correct. What were the big ideas that the two of them were bringing to the table in 2009? And in their view, what was missing from computing and what did they hope to change? Dr. Rosalind Picard actually started the field of effective computing. Uh, she wrote the seminal book about two decades ago called Effective Computing. Uh, so this field really is her brainchild. And today she still runs the group at the MIT Media Lab. So Rana, Dr. Rana Al-Kalyubi joined uh, Ross Picard's group uh, as a postdoc. And together they were building out the idea that uh, technology could have the ability to understand and respond to human emotions, to basically improve human interactions with technology, to make them more relevant, more appropriate, but also maybe to help humans uh, get a better 
grasp or a better control over emotions. Uh, in the early days especially, there was a lot of focus on the applications in mental health, uh, especially helping children on the autism spectrum to use technology to teach them how to recognize or understand emotions, and then coach them on how to express their own emotions appropriately. So that, that's where really this idea started in the early days. And then um, Rana and Ross started getting a lot of interest out of industry. So at MIT, of course, there's lots of events and conferences where industry members come to uh, get a sense of what's new in technology and what's evolving. And in these demo days, they started getting a lot of commercial interest in their technology um, out of a number of different industries, actually, including automotive, which interestingly enough is where we're very active today. Um, at the time, they went to the director of the media lab and said, you know, hey, we need more budget to hire more researchers. And aptly, he advised them, well, it's time you spin off and start your own company. And that's how in 2009, they co-founded Affectiva. Uh, Ross Picard is now uh, heading up the group at MIT Media Lab, so on a daily basis, she's no longer involved with the company. But uh, Dr. Anna Al-Kalyubi today is our CEO. As I understand it, you've got two main products. You've got one product that is focused on market research, and another one you mentioned, um, automotive. It's about driver safety. Can you say more about those two products? Maybe start with the one that's focused on market research. Is that called Aftex? So actually, uh, there are different, more than just these two products that we have, so there's different ways we've packaged up our technology, but those two markets that you were describing are really the key markets we're going after today. So the first one uh, where we have our technology, Aftex for Market Research, is a product, it's a cloud-based solution that basically enables media and advertisers, uh, including the big brands of the world, to test their content, such as video ads and TV programming with target audiences. And in that market, uh, we've been the market leader for a good number of years. We've had that commercial product out there for close to eight years at this point in time. And today, about one-fourth of the Fortune Global 500 uses our technology to test all their ads around the world. I think as of this month, we've probably tested more than 40,000 ads in 87 countries, and we've analyzed more than seven and a half million faces. So huge amounts of data that we have, and that's enabled us to build a product that can also help these advertisers predict key performance indicators in advertising. So emotion data or emotion analytics can actually help them predict the likelihood of content to go viral or purchase intent or sales lift. Okay, now help me understand, how does it, how does this actually work? So is this is this taking a video of someone while they're observing an ad, for instance, or and then it it analyzes the reactions of the face or the eyes or? Yeah, es essentially that's how, that's how it's done. Uh, in terms of how we typically work, is we work with large um, insights firms or market research firms, companies like Akantar Millward Brown. They have huge research processes in which they engage with their brand clients to understand how their advertising and go-to-market needs to take place. Now, we're part of their research methodologies, meaning that our technology is integrated into their overarching platforms. And typically how it would work is they have paid panelists that are recruited to participate in these consumer insights studies. 
Um, part of these studies, there might be a survey component, but there's also a component that says, okay, we'd like you online to watch a piece of content, which could be TV programming or a video ad. And we ask you to opt in and consent to us recording and analyzing your face as you watch that content. And that's where our technology comes in. Uh, it's a cloud-based solution. All we need is to basically take with permission access of someone's camera. And as they watch this content, sitting at home or wherever they happen to be on their device, we record kind of unobtrusively in the background their moment-by-moment -moment reactions to that content. So frame by frame, we analyze these responses. And interestingly enough, um, our research has shown that people quite quickly forget there's a camera there. They just naturally uh, react to whatever they, they, they're viewing. And it's that kind of unbiased and unfiltered reaction that you want. Because with that insight, if you then accumulate that at scale, you can make really important decisions about your content and even your content placement or how you spend your advertising dollars. So that, that essentially is the, the first market where Affectiva got started. Today, we're still very active in this market. Another market we're going after uh, really with full force right now is actually automotive. And uh, in the past year, almost a year ago, we launched a new solution for that market called Affectiva uh, uh, Automotive AI. Basically, this is our uh, core technology packaged and tuned to the automotive industry because the use cases there are, are very different. Uh, they're twofold. On the one hand, in automotive, um, as we all know, uh, road safety is a key issue. There's, there's lots of fatalities and tragic accidents that play, take place on the roads every single day due to distracted driving and drowsy driving. Now, what if you could detect that a driver was distracted or getting drowsy and have the car intervene in a relevant and appropriate manner. That, that's one thing that these automotive manufacturers are all going after. And this is where our technology comes in because again, just using cameras that are in cars already today, uh, we can quite simply and unobtrusively understand people's emotional states and complex cognitive states such as drowsiness and distraction by analyzing their face. So that's one use case in automotive, um, basically driver monitoring to help improve road safety. You must have quite a lot of data that you need to use to train your systems in order to be able to read the faces of a large number of people. Can you talk about where your training data is coming from? What kind of a boost you've gotten from the revolution in machine learning and um, deep learning over the last five, 10 years? Can you tell us a little bit about your data processes? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe maybe I should start with uh, machine learning and deep learning and why we actually use that. Um, so when you think about human emotions and how these kind of evolve and manifest, human emotions are actually very complex, often extremely subtle and nuanced. And then when you think about uh, complex cognitive states, which technically aren't emotions, things such as you know drowsiness and distraction, those are also things that evolve over time. And it's rarely prototypical. Right? Rarely in the real world do you see that 
exaggerated smile or someone falling asleep right away. It's, it's, it's temporal. And being to able to model for those complexities, you cannot do that with a rules-based heuristic approach. You really need to use machine learning to be able to detect those type of complexities. So that's why uh, a good number of years ago, our R&D really shifted to have all of our technology being built with uh, machine learning approaches. Now, machine learning uh, and you know, deep learning architectures need to be fueled by massive amounts of data. In addition to that, for us, um, we, again, when you think about modeling human states, obviously people don't look the same depending on age, gender, and ethnicity. And then there's also cultural influences that, and cultural norms that you know, kind of change sometimes the expression of emotions in human states. So in addition to being able to fuel deep learning, we also need large amounts of data to account for just the diversity that, diversity that exists in humankind, uh, diversities that exist around the world. So for Affectiva, data is essential to everything we do, and we've analyzed massive amounts of data, and we've collected massive amounts of data. As a matter of fact, we've analyzed over 7.6 million faces in 87 countries. And where are you getting that data from? Yeah, in a, manner, in a, in a number of different ways. So first and foremost, um, what I'd like to say, because it's so important to us, all this data is collected with opt-in and consent. We always, either we recruit people to have their data collected, or it's through kind of online mechanisms where we explicitly tell people that we're collecting data and ask them for permission to do so. Uh, also, that data is for the most part anonymized. So, uh, Elizabeth, if you participated in one of our studies, there's just no way I could find your face back because essentially you're a face. Right. You're, you're not an, a named individual. So we, we do um, feel strongly about that. Uh, we collect this data in a number of different ways. Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, we're very active in media and advertising, and uh, through our partnerships in that industry, uh, we have done a huge number of uh, media tests, and it's through that that we've collected massive amounts of data. There's other client relationships where they, we have basically data sharing agreements. Not all of our clients want to share their data, uh, but some of them do, so that's another path through which we get data. And then when you think, for example, about the automotive industry, and let's use the example of drowsy driving. Um, we have, so we have this massive foundational data set that allows us to build these algorithms, but we don't necessarily have huge amounts of drowsiness. Now, in order to model for that and build algorithms for that, you don't need just drowsy data, but you do certainly need a certain layer of that data on top of what you have already, so you can tune your algorithms for that. And so that you can discern between a drowsy look and a, I don't know, bored look or exactly, a whatever. Exactly, uh, or, distracted. or distracted, right? Yeah. Because those manifest differently. Mm -hmm. um, and also they have different consequences for as a driver. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And also in terms of how you collect that data in the vehicle, there's some kind of operational challenges as well, depending on camera placement, camera angles. And now, of course, we need to support near-infrared cameras that are being used because when you drive at night or in a tunnel, the lighting conditions aren't that good. So, so these are all so environmental conditions for which we would have ha we have had to train our algorithms. But when you think about it, capturing drowsy driving data is not that easy because it's not like we can keep people up for 48 hours in one of our 
fantastic sleep labs around Boston and then send them down Memorial Drive in a car and, and see if they fall asleep. That's something that we don't necessarily want to do. So it's also a matter of collecting massive amounts of data, mining our data for natural occurrences of those states, and then also doing very specific studies targeted at demographics that are inclined to be sleepy when they drive. For example, we've done a number of studies with shift workers people that might work long shifts in, for example, let's say a factory, and then have to drive home mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. um, you have more likelihood of capturing drowsy data that way. So there's, there's a variety of different ways that we're uh, collecting our data. Uh, that gives us a massive data repository, and then a subset of that data is used to model your machine learning classifiers, and then you carve out another subset that you use for training and validation. So you kind of keep those separate. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're continuously collecting data, continuously annotating that data. It's just an ongoing aspect of our R&D efforts and growing the repository that way. Right. So what you've just talked about is the ways in which you've been engineering the reading of emotions. Now. What about the sort of the need to program the computers to interpret and use that information? Um, isn't that a lot harder to do? It, it depends um, whether or not that harder is harder to do. It depends a little bit on what the interactions are. And usually that is the ultimate design des decision of our client, but it's very much also a collaborative process. So for us, when we, for us to develop these algorithms that can detect and analyze human emotions, it's also critically important to understand, you know, what are the use cases? How do they want to use that technology? Because you can't just build these algorithms right. in a vacuum. So it's very much a collaborative process. Um, so I was saying earlier that we're quite active in the automotive industry right now. So it's an ongoing dialogue with car manufacturers uh, as to how they use our data to then design adaptations or interventions in a vehicle. And some of this is very much an evolving process. If you can see that someone is getting distracted in a vehicle, um, you don't want to necessarily have all these alerts and alarms going off if it's just minor distraction, right? It might infuriate people or aggravate them even more and cause even more dangerous driving behavior. You want to be able to understand levels and intensities and frequency of distraction and then design very subtle relevant and appropriate interventions. And there's also a future state vision, and we're certainly not there from a technology perspective, but I do think we're heading there in the future. What if you could personalize that to the individual? So maybe when you get drowsy, you would like to listen to hard rock music. Maybe when I'm drowsy, I just absolutely want to get out of my car and stretch my legs and walk around. And the way that my car or a future robotaxi services my needs is adapted is to adapted your to needs. my personal needs in the moment right so the promise of potentially building this this in a personalized fashion i think we're heading there in the future but but not yet there today and i don't think we'll see that on you know in cars on the road anytime soon i'm interested in the extent to which you all are thinking about 
the backfire potential of this. So right now, of course, we're talking a lot about Facebook. We're talking a lot about 2016 elections. We're talking about the manipulation that we feel um, pretty sure has occurred through social media platforms like Facebook. Um, and I wonder to what extent you worry about what could be done with Effectiva's technology um, through the reading of the way people respond to certain things and therefore the adjustment of that uh, messaging to make it more impactful? Do you worry about what the kind of unforeseen consequences of this technology might be if it's not, if it's not managed properly? Of course we worry about it, but I think every single technology company needs to worry about potential adverse applications of the products they design. Because frankly, every single bit of technology that we use on a daily basis can be used for malintent or nefarious purposes. Uh, think about the truck. That's the transportation mode of, for terrorists by, you know, for cho of choice. Yeah. Or Google Maps, right? Um, so there's, and those, those technologies and those systems weren't designed for those use cases. So I do think first and foremost, as technology companies, you always need to be mindful of that, especially now that technology has become so accessible and compute power is so strong and it's at every consumer's fingertips. You have to be mindful of that. But, so when, you, yeah. but when you have a toolkit, do you worry about what happens if that toolkit can be used in ways that you all wouldn't necessarily be able yeah. to guard against? Yeah, absolutely. So there are things that companies can do and things that we have done. Yeah. So I was just kind of speaking just now in generality as to what I would wish technology companies would continuously think about. But to your earlier question, kind of back to the original question, do we worry about that? Absolutely, yes. And what are we doing about it? A number of different things. So first and foremost, um, our technology, we're very careful as to who we license it for. And we're getting a lot more stricter in that as to where we were maybe even a few years ago. So it's not like anyone out there can just grab our technology and build something with it. There is also license agreements, so legal documents that we have in place that safeguard against that. We also um, have stated as a company that there are certain types of use cases that we will just not sell our technology to. We believe in opt-in and consent because when you analyze things such as human emotions, emotions are extremely private and we do not want to engage in security or surveillance where people do not have the option to opt in or consent to their faces being analyzed. And we have actually turned down business that it would have taken us down that path. We wouldn't even be where we are right now if we, aren't, we weren't all feeling a great deal of kind of cynicism or skepticism around technology's ability to be harnessed or uh, kept from unforeseen negative consequences, right? So in a sense, it's giving everybody all of you guys are falling under closer scrutiny because we're feeling gun shy yeah. about technology. And we know yeah, the re regulatory <laughs> authorities in Washington are, are, are ineffectual in this respect. They are because they don't understand it, right? If you have senators asking how do you make the money? leadership of Facebook how they're making money yeah. because they don't understand the co concepts of personalized ad targeting, yeah, th then we have a problem. But, it's, but it's, it's an education issue as well. But there, there's, on top of that, an interesting friction, right? Because there's also, I think, aside from huge responsibilities that technology companies have and where maybe some have been lagging or negligent, 
what about the consumer, right? Because there, there's perceived value to be had. We, we like using social media platforms and we're okay sharing our lives there because we perceive to get value out of that. And, and we as consumers don't ask a lot of questions and that too worries me. Especially when you know, I have a daughter who's about to turn 13 and I suspect will spend a lot more time on device and social media. It's how do you educate for that? Even, even as a consumer, just these systems have also gotten hugely complex. Just go into your iPhone settings and try and kind of figure out where data is going and how it's flowing and what do you want to shut off when and how and right. how do you it's even do that? Very hard to decipher. It's, it's not very intuitive. Right, deliberately so. And you, have to, and you have to make a point out of going out there and finding information and doing it and reversing it rather than the other way around where maybe data is kept private all the time and you go in and you allow access. So there, there, it's a, there's a huge friction there, I think, between value consumers perceive to get versus value the technology companies actually get with the data, transparency in that. So for us as a company, we, we, we certainly do worry about that. And you have these time. conversations. Oh, yeah, and, and continuously. And also in public fora. Uh, we um, joined the Partnership on AI, which is an industry consortium designed to, to basically realize fair, accountable, transparent, and ethical AI. And we are one of few startups that were invited to be part of that, but that's, that's one way that we're hoping to drive for change. And also we're lucky in that uh, Rana, our CEO, is, is very much a, a thought leader in AI, very much a public persona. She has opportunities to be out there and speak in public settings, and she wants to be very vocal about these issues because we have a strong opinion on that. And we also feel we have a social responsibility to be transparent about this and to advocate for change in as much as a 50-person startup can do that. Right. But we all need to contribute our share. So when I think about what the impact of emotional AI or emotion AI could be down the path, does it mean that um, you know, Siri will get, Alexa will get better at understanding my emotions and responding to me uh, in, in accordance with my emotions? And if so, what does that what does that mean for the future? What does it mean if our devices are smart in this way about us as emotional beings? So today, of course, we're, we're connected by hyper-advanced systems and technologies, you know, advanced AI, lots of cognitive capabilities. But really what's missing is this emotion awareness. Right? These systems, for the most part, do not understand our state, our reactions, our well-being, and we, we at Affectiva certainly believe that that makes for very ineffective and superficial interactions with technology. So what if these systems could understand our emotions and our, our cognitive states and our reactions and our behaviors? How much more effective would our interactions with those technologies be? So in the future, I certainly envision a world in which our type of technology, emotion AI, is ingrained in the fabric of technologies that are at our fingertips every day. It's unobtrusively in the background, understanding and responding to our emotional well-being. I've always had this vision too that we as humans would maybe perhaps carry with us our 
Let's call it emotion passport, right? It's, it's our emotional digital footprint that we control. We own that data, we manage that, and we allow with our permissions and desires to take th that with us from device to digital experience to wherever we're using technology. Whether or not we're sitting in our office working on our laptop to getting in our car or using a ride share or on our home uh, systems like a Google Home or an Alexa or you name it, uh, any type of technology we interact with, there would be this consistent understanding of our well-being and it would guide and advise us and help us. And I think that's the critical part, right? And that's why I think it's also so important that this is all done with our own opt-in and consent and control. It's so fascinating because you can think about this technology being used to kind of create empathy in oh, yeah. the devices that we use and the experiences we have, right? And respond to the way we're reading uh, or reacting to an advertisement, for instance, and, and tuning that. And you can also think of this technology being used as a way of managing the, the emotions that we're feeling. So when you were talking about an, uh, an emotional passport, an emotion passport, you could sort of say, I'm feeling grouchy, I'm feeling under the weather, and, and I want the, my devices and my, my, my technology to respond to that. Or you could look at it as, my de those devices somehow need to manage me out of that emotion. And I, it's yeah. quite interesting to think about yeah. the way, it, it could go either way. And um, you know, I suppose I have my own vote as to which way I'd be most comfortable with it going. And, and ideally, the systems would understand you well enough what would be appropriate in the moment. Because here we allow for this data to be tracked longitudinally. And maybe in the morning, some home device I'm using might say like, hey, Gaddy, it seems like you're not as happy as you were yesterday morning. Um, I can also tell that you didn't really sleep the seven hours that are optimal for you. Would you like me to, whatever, turn on this music playlist? And maybe you don't want to drive to work today. Why don't I order a ride share for you? Or uh, the coffee machine uh, just started in the kitchen. Or vice versa, you come home from work and it's like, hey, you had a really tough, rough day at work. Um, I made a restaurant reservation for you and the babysitter is coming for your kid. Yeah, and, and the idea is that these, that with, with let's, let's call it an emotion passport, um, that gives our systems and the technologies that we use, gives them insight into our personal state and well-being. The idea is that it can help guide and advise us and essentially try and make our lives better or more effective. Mm. Of course, I personally would like that always to be within my control and my opt-in and consent. Maybe I don't want my well-being data sent to my doctor or, God forbid, my insurance company, but maybe in some situations that is helpful. And being able to allow our technologies to get a deeper understanding into our well-being and our state can be critically valuable. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Gabby. This has been very interesting. This is a, an exciting area of development, and we wish you every success. Thank you so much, and thanks for speaking with me. It was such great questions. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bramson Boudreau. I'm CEO and publisher of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 
You can find us in print, on the web, at dozens of live events each year, and now in audio form. At our website, technologyreview.com, you can find out more about us. And don't forget to apply to join the MIT Technology Review Global Panel, a group of thought leaders, innovators, and executives where you can learn from your peers and share your expertise on today's technology and business trends. Apply at technologyreview.com slash global panel. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. The producer is Wade Rausch with editorial help from Mindy Blodgett. Special thanks to our guest, Gabby Zeiderbelt. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode.